Snapping pictures. We do a lot of that. Pictures of everything. The world is awash in images. My cloud is crowded like yours probably. Some of the pictures we're really proud of. Most we forget about or delete. I've taken a thousand sunsets, maybe 5,000 of animals in Africa. I've been a photo hobbyist since the days of film. I got dozens of little plastic boxes filled with snapshots sitting in storage. But I've always had a real passion for what true artists can capture through a lens. Like my friend and guest, world-renowned fine art photographer, David Yarrow. His work is spectacular, intimate, immersive, visceral, whether he's capturing wildlife, landscapes, or humans. Tom Brady is a huge Yarrow fan. He wrote the foreword to David's book of breathtaking pictures. Brady says David's work makes him feel awe, humility, reverence for how beautiful the world is. David is a gifted storyteller through his art, but he's also a great storyteller about how the pictures were created. So I've got an idea to help you enjoy the conversation even more. Go to davidyarrow.photography. It spells it Y-A-R-R-O-W. You can use your phone or ideally a bigger screen and you'll be blown away by the quality and breadth of his work. And David's going to share stories about how some of his best pictures were made. They're all on the site. And you can search titles like Dexter of a hippo, Hello, a polar bear shot, The Killers, and others. David also tells stories about working with Russell Wilson and Ciara in a Wild West setting. Cindy Crawford recreating an iconic Super Bowl commercial and paying tribute to classic scenes in The Wolf of Wall Street. And near the end of the episode, there's a story about a man, the sea, and an orca that takes the most surprising turn of any story ever told on this podcast. We started our conversation where David started, in sports photography, as a 20-year-old straight out of Scotland. He took one of the most powerful pictures of sports celebration ever, one that launched his career. Diego Maradona raising the World Cup trophy in Mexico City, 1986. Yeah, I mean, I look back, I never thought then that, um, my goodness, 50, 25, 35 years for, on from there, uh, I'd be having this conversation about it. Um, I hadn't uh, taken many good pictures in the World Cup. I was too young. I uh, hadn't had an, enough experience. It was the days when cameras didn't have autofocus. You had follow focus. And I was just a bit green, a bit raw. Um, couldn't uh, cope with the high sun, which a lot of the games were at 12 o'clock Mexican time or three o'clock. But I got lucky at the final whistle. I, I thought um, the only way I was going to get a picture was to leave all my other cameras behind the goal and just go with a very small wide angle. I was slimmer, fitter than I am now, and I could get very close to Maradona. And just at, at the key moment, he looked right at me. Uh, he was on the shoulders of another player, tons of Argentinians, on the pitch, it was total chaos. You'll never have something like that again after 86 because fans won't be allowed onto the pitch. It's a bit like in the golf. You remember when they finished an open, when the players went through the, played their second shot to the 18th, it was a massive charge of spectators. And then the winning player would make his way rather biblically through the first row of the crowd. And I think that still goes on a little bit, but it's more orderly than it used to be. This was total disorder, uh, chaos, and I just got lucky. But I was in the position to take the picture, and I had the right lens, which was a wide angle, I think a 35 mil. So I had the contextual narrative of the stadium behind and Maradona. Um, if it was just Maradona in the cup, there wouldn't be a picture. If it was just the stadium, the biggest stadium in the world, I think then, uh, without Maradona, there wouldn't be a picture. It's the coalescing of those two variables, the two layers, put it together, and the fact that he was looking right at me. You said biblical. That's a perfect description. He's standing there, arms raised like a god. The World Cup trophy is in one hand, just at the same level as I think the flags that are ringing the top of the stadium. I mean, it's just a, it's a composition you couldn't have, have staged any better than that. And yeah, above <laughs> this massive humanity, there's his face and your lens, and it's directly in front. And I would encourage people to seek that out because now that he's passed... Um, his legend has only grown, but to have that moment, the pinnacle of one of the great soccer careers ever, and be able to capture that. And you're right, decades later, people still refer to that picture. I was on a plane the other day uh, before COVID, and in the Maradona movie, 
they use that picture. And I had no idea that they used it in the movie. And I was, I get more emotional on planes than I do on land, like a lot of people. And I started to get a little bit emotional seeing my picture. So, I, and I had no one to tell. And I called the stewardess over with the button and she thought I wanted a whiskey or whatever. And I was going, that's my picture. And she's going, there's a lunatic in seat B61 or whatever. <laughs> hey, you're allowed to brag. That's beautiful. Uh, one other sports photograph that is very different from the, the chaos and the confusion of Azteca to the gentility of a porch at Augusta National. Gary Player was a dear friend of yours. There's a photograph with Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, and Gary Player in their Masters Champion green jackets on this very elegant-looking porch. And I think they're in rocking chairs, maybe. And and that was pretty close to the time when Arnold Palmer passed. It was one of the last pictures captured of him. So but, what yes. an incredible moment that must have been. It, it was. Uh, I'm not prone to nerves. Um, I've been very fortunate to meet, a, like you, a lot of extraordinary people in my life and um, and through my art, uh, sit down and have conversations with people that I would never expect to. And I think that was one of the few occasions that I've been a little bit nervous because you have the, the, the kind of Mount Rushmore of golf. You know that area of Augusta behind the um, 18th well and there must have been 500 people watching me take the picture. Um, but typical of Gary, he only told me about 45 minutes beforehand that I was going to be taking the picture. And I had the wrong lens and I had no time to go and change my lens. So I couldn't get them to move backwards. You can't tell Arnold Palmer to move his seat back. <laughs> so I was stepping further and further back. And then I fell into a hedge. And because I didn't <laughs> see what was behind me. And I think it's fair to say that, and I, I mean this with the hugest amount of respect to Jack Nicholas, but he's had his picture taken enough. And I can understand why another picture by another photographer might not fill him with the joys of spring. But that's why he's, that's why he's smiling. It's because he's just seen me fall into the back of the hedge. <laughs> otherwise, Whatever it, it takes, David, if you have to take a pratfall to get your subject yeah. to, to, to loosen up. What, what's amazing about that picture, and it's true of a lot of your work, is that there's such intimacy in that image, even if it was hastily taken in less than ideal lens, there's such an intimate connection to the subject, and yet you'd never know there were 500 people breathing down your neck as you took it. And, and that's what's so remarkable about a lot of your great images that we'll get into, the wildlife, is just the intimacy, that, that absolute visceral connection between the person looking at it and the subject. Yeah, I mean... Uh... You're kind to say that. If um, if someone asked me uh, uh, who my favorite film director uh, was, it's quite easy. It'd be Spielberg, and and then the, the, there'd be so many others who come after Spielberg. But and and why? Because he's the most emotionally invested film director, um, and there's a lot of others that are very emotionally invested. Um, photography is all about emotion, and in order to elicit emotion in others. I think you have to have a degree of immersion. Um, and that tends to often come from proximity. Uh, it's quite difficult to make people emotional about things if the distance between the camera and the subject matter is a long way. There are, there are examples that disprove that rule. When, when Jack Nicholas himself you remember when, when he won his last Masters and he sunk that big putt at 17 and he raised his putter in his head wearing the yellow shirt. Mm -hmm. That's quite an emotional picture. Uh, and, and I know a few of the, you know, a few of the people that got that picture. Um, but that was taken with a long lens. It's quite difficult generally when you're far away to, to be able to convey that. And I, that's why I don't tend to work with long lenses too much. Yeah, I could geek out on the the photography aspect of this because I'm I'm a, a hack hobbyist, but I do love it. I won't indulge myself on that and 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 risk losing the attention of other people. But that is the problem when you when you shoot pictures of of dangerous, large, wild animals. It's tough to get close, and we do tend to take the pictures from far away, and that's what sets apart the shots you take on vacation versus the beautiful ones that sell for a lot of money that you take. But yeah, we'll get into some of the stories because to get close, to get low, to get eye level, to get access, 
not only takes a hell of a lot of preparation and planning and money in some cases, it takes a lot of balls. You have to put yourself in harm's way and your camera is in harm's way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it a a long time. And what I do know is that it's become harder now to do some of the things that I've done over the last six or seven years, not because I was in any way doing things that were unethical, but the whole issue of invading animal space and their their way of life is an issue that's being brought up in the very same way that so many issues we never thought about three or four years ago are being brought up. Um, and um, I, um, I've got mixed feelings about it. I think it's going to be tougher for other people going forward to use remote controls in case the animal steps on the remote control. Forget about the camera. What happens if it hurts its foot? What happens if an animal charges a Jeep? Don't worry about the people in the Jeep. What about if the animal does damage to himself by charging the Jeep? Um, so I'm very conscious, increasingly conscious these days of setting a standard. And I guess I'm there to be shot at metaphorically um, because people rightly or wrongly see what I our brand and maybe maybe i'm there to set set standards um but if you work with the right people on the ground and we do tend to um you can get close legally you can get on the ground it's all about homework and um and if you work with the right people everything is possible i in 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 15 years all my dangerous moments chris have always been with people never with animals my, the, the, the moments I've felt for my life have always been with people because people can do three things that animals can't do. They can get drunk, they can get high, and they can buy a gun. And to the best of my knowledge, animals can't do any of those three things. So when people ask me, you're, you, you've, you've been cavalier, you've, you've, put, you've put yourself in harm's way, I can't think of an occasion with an animal. Um, I've had I've had bears standing over me in Alaska in the summer, but they've eaten 180 salmon over the last 24 hours. They're not in the least bit interested in me. Um, but if you had that same situation before that before the salmon run, you'd be in a different maybe a different dynamic. So just go during the salmon run. Yeah, well, sure. You you have to have the knowledge. You have to have local experts. You have to have the ability to figure out when an animal is most dangerous and not dangerous. I don't know. I might, I might take issue with that. Having seen some of your videos, um, you're in a, a tiny, shitty little canoe in the Zambezi River, uh, which is a beautiful river to raft in, but it's also filled with crocs and hippos, and you're going after Dexter the hippo. And it's very difficult to shoot hippos. They're kind of shy. They're, they're ornery. They're these big, dark animals that spend most of the time underwater. And canoeing around hippo-laden waters seems pretty damn dangerous to me. You ended up getting this amazing shot by laying on the bank and getting kind of an eye-level shot as he takes his big, giant head out of the water. But that seemed seemed a little dicey to get that shot. I I have to confess, the animal that scares me the most is the hippo. Um, I am petrified of hippos. So (laughs) I, I I got charged a few times in Tanzania, and they can run quicker than you. And... I think they do kill more people than any other animal in, in Africa, actually. Um, but Dexter, he doesn't know he's called Dexter, but Dexter's a bit of a bluffer. He gives you a couple of chances. And <laughs> it's like, if you know, if you're playing poker with Dexter, you know what cards he's got in his hand to begin with. How do you Just know what's in the mind of a hippo? I mean, yes, you're with the guy that is familiar with him, but ultimately... Humans, we always think we can read this animal. We know how he's going to behave because we, we have an acquaintance with him. I mean, and that's you're playing the percentages, right? I mean, ultimately, you don't know what a particular lion or tiger or hippo is going no. to do when you get pretty damn close to him. Trust is, is such a short word, but trust is the foundation on which I've built so many of uh, our assignments. Trust in humans or animals or both? Tr- you're trusting the human that in his understanding of the animal in question. And uh, we, I could get, I could cite so many examples, polar bears up in Alaska, where the Inuit would say, don't worry about this one. I know his parents, 
you know, and you're going, really? Do you really know this polar bear's parents? Is he really not going to go for me? Um, well, there's so, a shot you took. I mean, people can go find this shot on, on your website where it looks like you are nose to nose with a polar bear. It looks like he is so close. Okay. I know that's not a, that's not a long lens and he, his nose is right in the camera. That was a picture called Hello. We managed to call it Hello just before Adele called her song Hello. So it shows her. <laughs> how long ago this picture was taken. But I actually managed to take a selfie of myself in the polar bear's eyes. But uh, so I think it was taken on with a standard lens. Um, what people don't know about that was between me and the polar bear, I'm in a tiny canoe. And there isn't much evidence of polar bears jumping onto canoes. Um, and um, my Inuit guide, who's the boss up there felt reasonably comfortable with the whole thing. He was a, he was a four-year-old bear as well. Um, and more inquisitive than anything else. But the picture works because he's looking head on at me. You've been in the water taking pictures of sharks is another iconic image, uh, which is sought after because it is, uh, appeals to anyone that believes they have a predator inside of them. And it's this great white shark with his jagged teeth wide open. And he's got, uh, a seal, a fin of a seal actually about to be clamped onto it. What, what's the story behind that, having to get down in, in, in the water to, to grab that? Yeah, that was actually, take, that was in a boat um, in False Bay, just around the corner from Cape Town. And from about 2000, 2005 to 2012, 13, I got fascinated with great white behavior in this bay where the, the sharks would come in to attack the, the seal pups. But they'd only do it in June, July, their winter. And they'd only attack, attack breach in the first hour of sunrise for reasons none of us know. We don't, we don't know why that is the case. Maybe the lighting makes it easier for them to identify the seals. Um, and I spent uh, about 30 hours in the water waiting for this to happen. And every time I, I took a trip down to Cape Town, it might have been about twenty twenty five thousand dollars of costs, and I got nothing. I was coming back with nothing, and it's one of the we hear so many you know, of, of these maxims in sports and business about success being ninety nine percent failure and never quit. But that's my never quit story because I think I was probably down maybe about forty thousand dollars, and I hadn't got anything. And then my final time that I really had an opportunity, it, it happened. Um, and I, I tell that to people now as a story is it's why, A, you start off with a lot of failure. You must never quit. Always believe in yourself. And it can be tough, but you've just got to persevere. And then th about three years ago, an orca, killer whale, came into that area and killed a great white shark. Um, and the sharks have all gone. They've never appeared there again. So... I had that one moment in time, and I, and I wonder whether that will that moment, that decisive moment, will ever be captured again because the sharks have all gone. There used to be about thirty or forty great whites around that island, um, uh, about one hour from Cape Town, and now there are none. Wow. Well, you talked about the frustration, the patience that it takes. These images, and we'll get back into your connection with film, they're very cinematic. There's a, there's a glamour in many of the shots, but there's the unglamorous part that goes into it. And we won't dwell on that because people would rather focus on the glamour. But what goes into the, 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 the getting of that kind of an image? You said the access, being in the right place at the right time. You use luck, but you have to, you have to make your own luck. And, and talk about that, David, just the, the, the work that goes into being ready for that moment when all of a sudden you can press the... The shutter. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a photographer. I'm not a wildlife photographer. I'm just a photographer. Wildlife photography is a very crowded space. Anyone can go in non-COVID years to Tanzania, to Kenya. They can buy a long lens. They can work with the right guide. They can be in the right place at the right time to capture a decisive moment of predation or whatever. Uh, and there are a lot of these pictures circling the world right now of those kind of things. And I want to be a, as far away from that as possible. I want to try and do things that are authentic, that are different, that the world hasn't really seen before. 
or perhaps not in the way that I'm photographing it. That's quite a hard task. If you set the bar that high um, to try and transcend, that's why I was in Antarctica last week for 45 minutes to try and transcend. I failed because of things beyond my control, but we'll go back to Antarctica next month because it's the extra mile. And it's a bit of a cliche, but you know the saying that there are no traffic jams on the extra mile. And if I go to somewhere where I see 10 other photographers, it goes back to my days of sports photography. You know Centre Court at Wimbledon very, very well. It is incredibly difficult, no matter how talented those sports photographers are, to get a picture of Djokovic or Nadal or Federer that the world hasn't seen. They're, the world is swamped with those kind of pictures, which is slightly unfair on the great sports photographers that they're not seen to be pieces of art because you see so many of them knocking around. I'm, I am. Um, for you, I for, do, for it to be art has to stand out. It can't be common. It can't have been seen before. It, it, no matter how well executed a beautiful wildlife shot is, you're, you're not interested in that because it's been done before. You're looking for something different. Of course, it's not, it's not for me to determine what's art or not. It's, it's, it's for the viewer to do, it's for the ultimately for the collector or the viewer to determine what, what is art. Um, but at the margin, um, East Africa, Peter Beard did some extraordinary work in East Africa, but it was, it was art. It wasn't too literal. He threw pictures of naked girls and threw blood onto, he was high, bless him, a lot of the time, which is where his genius came from. Um, uh, but I think there has to be something that transcends. There has to be something that allows, I remember, I remember speaking to the chairman of the Tate Modern in London, and he said, of all the forms of art in the world, the one that leaves me the most cold is, is wildlife photography. And I said, why is that? He said, I don't, I don't need to be told what a giraffe looks like. I know what a giraffe looks like. And there is a danger that wildlife photography has become too literal. The only other way you get around that is you go, as you were suggesting, to places that other people just don't go to. And, and we do try to go to some places that involve a commitment of time, money. If we do a stage shot um, working with famous people, our average day's production cost is $100,000. Hmm. If we do um, a shot in, in, in the wild, the average production cost is maybe a 20th of that. And what we're trying to do is move that second number up to go to places that are just a bit more extreme. Uh, and, and, and involve a little bit more hardship as well. Well, your pictures are not about what a giraffe or any animal looks like. The intimacy gives you an idea of what they are like inside. I mean, you can see into their soul if it's done properly. I mean, I've got pictures behind me here that I took with a long lens that what you're referring to, I'm, I'm a hobby. These are African cats back here and they're not extraordinary, but they just bring back memories. And I think that, and I think that's perfectly okay. If you're trying to do Absolutely. what you're doing, that's something different. But, but David, some of these shots of, of, of lions or tigers from ground level, from what you can, you, and you, you love wolves because they have, I guess, expressive eyes or there, there's a, there's an intimacy or an element of, danger or menace with them but the, the, the best ones are you're seeing into the animal's soul you're not just seeing what they look like the eyes eyes are the windows to the soul um and uh if they're true if that's true in a human it's probably true in an animal as well other than maybe the polar bear because they're so dark that you just don't see anything <laughs> in the eyes um but uh yeah we work with wolves are very sexy animals and they evoke um, a lot of different emotions. In Why people. are wolves sexy animals? I think because every man wants to be a wolf. Every <laughs> woman wants to be wolf-esque. Uh, and it's been used in so many different films. But whatever the, the film, the word wolf, like we recreated some of the scenes from The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, irrespective of the fact it was a black comedy on bad behavior and illegal behavior in trading, Everyone still wants to be that wolf, rightly or wrongly. Um, and you go back in history, wolves, whenever the word wolf was used, it was used in a connotation that was probably favorable to the wolf. It was never a negative connotation, even though it might have evoked in the war, uh, it might have evoked thoughts of, of, of danger. 
um, Dances with Wolves. There are so many movies where wolves are used in a way to conjure up thoughts that just give you a little bit of a shiver down your spine. Well, wolves are certainly a part of the lore of Western America. You spend a lot of time in the Western part of this country, including during COVID, driving around from, from state to state and photographing these breathtaking, mostly black and white images. And, and wolves seem to pop up in lots of places, along with these iconic looking humans. So there, there's a great deal of, of fun, I would imagine, in creating these images. You're not capturing something that's there. You're creating it from scratch and casting it and, and, uh, and executing it, right? Yeah, I mean... The, I'm I'm from Glasgow in Scotland, and we've got a, we've got a, an interesting history that goes back hundreds of centuries. But I think the second half of the 19th century in America is the greatest story ever told, and uh, that is why it's got a film genre all to himself. That's why westerns are westerns because there is so much material, and it is a, a storybook that's played out against the grandeur of your extraordinary blessed country from a geological perspective. Uh, I've no doubt in my mind that America is from a visual perspective, the most blessed country in the world. The problem is it's over photographed, but if you can couple the grandeur of Monument Valley or the architectural beauty of Chicago or the just the, ridiculously unhinged final frontier towns in Montana. And then you can couple that with a, a character rich storyboard because the, the, the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s had every kind of character and you throw them into that melting pot with the canvases in the background, you can't fail. The only thing is that we want to do it in winter. There's always something, you used the word visceral earlier on. There's something about the snow that if I have to photograph Colorado, do I photograph Colorado in winter or summer? Winter. If I'm photographing Wyoming, winter or summer? Winter. Utah, winter or summer? Winter. Every time I go winter. And it works, but it doesn't mean that we do find ourselves stuck up a mountain in minus 30 degrees with very famous supermodels wondering where they're going to spend the night. But that's all part of, that's all part of, the, uh, uh, of the charm of what we do. Yeah, well, you've done whole books on on the most remote and in some ways uncomfortable places on Earth because you seem to find great beauty in that kind of discomfort, great great profundity in in, in being off the beaten path and and away from creature comforts and and looking for those those pictures that capture something moody, doom, danger. I mean, you know, you don't seem to seek out the bright sunlight and the perfectly blue sky and all those kinds of those, the settings for the picture. Oh no, you don't want, you don't want good weather. You want bad weather, but, and it's, it's kind of weird because <laughs> why I think it just adds an extra dimension. You know, when, when people wake up in the morning and they pull their curtains and this blue sky and they go, what a beautiful day to take pictures. I'm going, no, what a dreadful day to take pictures. You want it to be, you want it to be Green Bay in the playoffs in, in January. That's, that's what I want. I, I went up to, I w I've covered a game up there in the playoffs and I wanted it to be so cold and blowing, snowing. And I was on the pitch. Wasn't there a game, a famous game up there and they called it something, the ice storm. Oh, or the something. ice bowl, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so I was looking at the temperature and it was like minus 15 and everyone's going, great, it's only minus 15. I thought, no, no, come on. I want it to be minus 20. But sadly, it wasn't. <laughs> you want to be able to capture the breath coming out of the player's yeah, exactly. mouth and you nostrils. Know, you, and, know, you know. Well, the there game. was just a football game played here, uh, Michigan-Ohio State, famous rivalry. And I think that the word that came to mind as I was watching it was, was cinematic. Not just yeah. because the storylines played out that way, because the snow was falling. And it, it was yeah, just yeah. Every, every frame of it was, was dramatic. And that, that comes through in lots of your pictures. We uh, photographed uh, Russell Wilson uh, in Montana in the summer, and uh, uh, we shot in the middle of the night. He's very game, and I said, "I said, Russell, you hope you don't mind getting wet." And uh, <laughs> he, he looked up in the sky and he said, "David, I understand. I can't see a cloud in the sky." I went, "No, no, no. We brought the rain." And then this <laughs> truck arrived, <laughs> and he was very game. Though he got absolutely soaked. You've got lots of famous friends, including. Uh football players and, and sports here. Tom Brady's a friend. You, you photograph these guys who, who, uh, who seem to be pretty game to be thrown into these situations and, and uh, play along and have fun with it. 
I think um, I did a, a podcast with with uh, um, uh, someone you'll know, Tim, with Tim Ferriss, about a year and a half ago, um, and um, we're talking about fame, and you know a lot of famous people, and I think fame's just an amplifier. And I'm borrowing from Chris. If someone's a good person, and then they become very good at what they do, and they become famous, I think they'll re- continue to be a good person just maybe an even better person because they're coping with their fame. If someone's a bit of an arsehole, it probably can go the other way as well. Um, in my experience, and my experience is small versus yours, the, the, the stars that I've dealt with have been so likable and charming. It's the, it's the entourage, one layer underneath you've got to be careful about. They're the ones that get the little bit of the jitters. But once you've got over the entourage I've, i find it a walk in the park it's just the entourage that sometimes i have my moments with yes i can relate to that i know exactly what you're <laughs> saying when you've dealt with, with with supermodels i mean sometimes your pictures seem to merge the areas of wildlife and, and fashion photography i guess there, there are similarities there there are things they have in common but but you've worked with cindy crawford a lot and trying to recreate some some iconic things and and, and how has that been with her sort of decades later trying to to create a still photograph that r- recalls uh, a TV commercial. I think we all remember it. You'll remember it from the Super Bowl in 92. I think the tough thing for me is that we're the same age. And when she shot that in 1992, we were the same age. And now we look 15 years apart. <laughs> she, she hasn't aged at all. Um, no, it's um, if you ask my team, uh, my team have had the pleasure of working with all sorts of people over the last four or five years uh, in all walks of life. And if you ask my team to put it on a piece of paper, write down their favorite person, unbeknown to each of them, they'd all say Cindy Crawford. Um, she's, she's, uh, she's true. She's professional. She's kind. She's not affected. She'll go to the most marginal person in the room and speak to them if they, she feels they're disenfranchised. Uh, and I had the pleasure of spending a few days with her. We went um, up to Madison where the Badgers play. And of course, that's where um, she, she's given so much of her philanthropic uh, efforts to, towards. Um, and we, I actually went to a Badgers game. It was extraordinary. It's the only time in my life because I'm used to British football where in a British football, if your team's doing badly, the crowd uh, diminishes after half time because people want to go. Whereas the game I went to, the crowd builds up after half time because everyone's getting drunk in the pubs beforehand before they go to the game. Anyway, um, we raised with her in one weekend $2.6 million with one pitcher. Wow. And uh, which is a testimony to her, not me. Uh, and we did events in Madison and in Chicago, and she was brilliant. Um, it was great fun to do that. It's the second or third time we've collaborated, and um, we get a. She's very easy to 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 work with, um, and we have a lot of fun together. Uh, and she's the total pro. Uh, so no, it's very humbling when you work. You know, in your job, when you've got a big thing to commentate on. Um, it, it's good because it keeps you on your toes. You, you want to be the best you can be. And if you're commentating on a men's final Wimbledon or whatever, you want to be your very best. And with Cindy, I want to be the very best at what, what I do. Yeah, perfectly said. I'm glad you got to experience U.S. college football in, in Madison because that's one of the crazier, better atmospheres you can have. And, and uh, it's, it's a fun place. Yeah, They're in nuts. the best possible way. Yeah, <laughs> I encourage people for who come from uh, the UK or anywhere where that's a that's a global football slash soccer fan to to experience college football because it's the closest yeah. thing you have in this country to that kind of uh, that kind of celebratory uh, atmosphere. David enjoys spectacle and has a real sense of drama. We talked about how he doesn't just take pictures but also makes them pictures that come from ideas that he says are creative but also have to sell. And they would include a story, setting, a cast of humans and animals. His latest work is called Catwalk. And it's an extraordinary, one-of-a-kind picture. It plays on the idea of a Paris fashion show. In this case, 
It's a beautiful lion on a catwalk, and the audience are a hundred or so proud Zulu tribes people in South Africa whom David paid and were photographed separately from the lion to create some safety. The picture has a wonderful sense of harmony and celebration of lions, and you can see it again on davidyarrow.photography. David often borrows concepts from some of his heroes, film directors, and their storytelling talents. If you're a photographer, as opposed to a filmmaker, you have to tell a story in 250th of a second. Um, if you look at the great American artist, Norman Rockwell, he would tell a story in one painting. Uh, if you're a filmmaker, and I have such enormous respect for just about every filmmaker, they've got a far tougher job than us. The only time that where our job is a little bit challenging is we've got to tell it all in that one single frame, which makes it very difficult because you've got, that means you've got to make that frame sweat. Um, when we're doing the Wolf of Wall Street series, um, I was thinking all the time, how would Scorsese? Well, I knew because I'd watched the film so many times. But when we finished our, we got that final picture in the Wolf of Wall Street, which was embodying the same principles as Catwalk. Um, I, Scorsese signed it, and uh, which was a great thrill for me that he, he actually thought that's not a bad still of what I was trying to do. Albeit we put a wolf in there and, and Jordan Belford. I love that phrase. What does it mean to you make the frame sweat to be effective? <laughs> you've got to, you know, if you look at your computer screen, you've got to make every inch of that computer screen sweat. If you look at the game, the sport that you watch the most of in, in, uh, in, in terms of tennis, the best tennis players you commentate on, they put the ball into every single corner of that, the corners of the court, right on the tram lines, in the middle when they need to, but they make that whole court sweat for their opponent. It's the same with a photograph. You've got to make it work. Every part of it work for you. Yeah, the word, world is uh, drowning in images because of the, the iPhone cameras. There probably have been more images taken of some sort um, in the last five years than in the entire human history before it, I would say, easily. With yeah. that kind of oversaturation, to grab attention, to hold it, has to be really challenging. I don't think um, enough photographers think about that um and i think that's absolutely right so to grab someone's attention as you say hold it is more and more of a challenge i think the mistake that photographers make including myself is to think that they can take a huge number of pictures a year that the world needs to see my my goal and i've, I've always said this on record is if I can take five good pictures a year, that's a good year for me. The way that I look at a good picture is if your house went on fire and that picture was destroyed with the file and it was nowhere else with the house, would you, how many, how many days would you think about the fact you'll never have that picture again with you? And the five pictures, if those five pictures that were destroyed with the FAR for this year, I'm not sure I could take any of them again. Uh, a good picture has a couple of things within it. Number one, it should be looked at, can be looked at for a long time. Number two, it can never be taken again. And that's an important way of looking at things. If, if, if your good picture is a picture of, um, um, Chicago, going down the river at sunset and you're proud of it. You can go back there. It's still that it still will be always the architectural city of the world. You can still go back and take that picture. If you got a picture as I might've had this year of something of six bison charging towards me through the snow, it's never going to, I don't think I'm ever going to get that again. I could try, but I really don't think I'm going to get that again. So, Less is more. Most of the time, Chris, I take pulp. I take mediocre, average nonsense that the world doesn't need to see. So the world doesn't see. 
because it's just really, really average. And that's fine. I think it's, it's you, you always know, it, I don't really fish that much. I don't know whether you fish, but you always know if you're with a good fisherman, if he comes back and says, oh, I had a great day. I got a couple, but they weren't huge. I just put them back in, but what a lovely day. You know, that's a real proper fisherman. Whereas if there's a guy that bringing back the little fish that can't really feed too many, you're thinking he may be a bit of a junior fisherman. So it's okay. You can have a good day, even though you don't take a special picture because, because you're out there on the job and sort of enjoying it and present, or you got to have something special for, for, for you to feel great about. I it. think this, you can have two, you can have two different reactions. You can, can come back at the end of the day and say there was nothing there for me to take in, in like in Alaska with bears in Alaska. We did, we did five days, uh, back to back. Um, and we know what we're doing up there every day. We came back to the lodge and we said, well, it was a shit day. We're down 20,000 shit day, but you know what? We didn't miss anything. It's when you miss something mm. through your own, poor execution that's that's upsetting and the final day there was something happened something was there and we got it what you don't want to do is be presented with the the opportunity and miss it and that happens that of course that happens uh, i had a i had a crusade there was this a very big bear that i've always wanted to photograph he's huge and I had my remote control down on the ground. And lo and behold, he came right towards, walking right towards the remote control. And I'm, I'm, my focal plane is about four foot in front of the camera. And about five foot in front of the camera, for whatever reason, he stopped or lost momentum and then went and had a shit in the woods. <laughs> and, but... My camera, I still pressed the trigger when the last, because I've got the motor, I've got the remote control, um, but it was just maybe half a second before where my focal plane was. And I went all the way back from Anchorage to Los Angeles, looking at this picture on my computer and going, I think I may have got it. I think I may have got it. Maybe I've got it to convince myself that I hadn't, that it wasn't really bad luck. And then when we went to the studio the next day in LA and it's printed the size of a pool table as mine are. And I just went, Oh God, I haven't got it because that's when you find out whether it's sharp or not, it's got to be pin sharp. And it just wasn't. And you have moments like that. Of course you do. Is there a great market for, for a picture of a bear taking a shit? Was that, was that, would that have been a nice, uh, you'll be surprised with what people people (laughs) want to buy these days. And what, what I respect about you, David, is you are so damn hard on yourself and you have a high bar. It doesn't matter if your pictures are praised by others. You, you want to meet your own standard and you, you constantly believe not only that you can improve, but that you must improve, that that's imperative to be better this year than last. And, and you're in your fifties now and, and you feel like you're, you're the best photographer you've been. And I, I admire that. I can relate to that somewhat in that quest to not settle to be tough on yourself and I always feel like you must improve. And I, I really respect that because a lot of guys who've done what you've done, whatever the field is, but particularly in photography would sit back on their ass and just, and, and, and mail it in. Fast. I think, I think, um, yeah, it goes right to your heart and your personality. Um, imagine starting January the 1st and I learned this from some of my mentors. You start on January the 1st, you wake up with a hangover and you go, this year we're going to do it slightly less well. Well, that's not a really particularly good way to start January the 1st to go, this year we're going to do it slightly. You know, aging is a fairly miserable process. Um, There's so many things you become less good at, um, but you should become a better photographer because photography is about emotional intelligence. And you do become more, I think, more emotionally intelligent you get older so long as you don't become, you know, like a really old fart, but you should, you should, because it's the summation of the aggregation of everything you've learned. Um, and I, I'm slightly more confident now than I used to be. I went for a meeting with FIFA the other day in Zurich, and uh, the, the what the FIFA guy said, so how would you like to photograph Messi? 
and my first reaction was uh, to say, well, certainly not on a football pitch. Uh, to which he replied, I'm so pleased you said that. And I think maybe 10 years ago, I might have said, well, for him playing for Argentina or Paris Saint-Germain or Barcelona, whatever. Whereas now I want to photograph him coming over the hills of Patagonia with some goats because he's the greatest of all time. So that's how I want to photograph Messi. I don't want to photograph him in his normal environment. That's not got an awful lot to do with photography. I think that's got an awful lot to do with more your creative processing and trying to assess what is going to capture people's emotion. Yeah, it's great to have that sense of um, intellectual maturity, as you said. There, there's Because there's a great physicality to your work. I mean, literally, it's a physical experience. It's demanding. The pictures have a physicality to them. At times, you've had to be fearless slash borderline reckless, depending on the definition of it. I don't know that that's still done as much now. But you, you still have the appetite for that, for putting yourself and your gear in harm's way when needed because the intensity of the experience is, is that seductive? I think on, on some, I had a, I had a bad experience with killer whales up in Norway, orcas. And because if you're going to photograph an orca, you want to photograph them. Photographing anything on the sea, you want to be as close to sea level as possible. Um, and there is a big difference between photographing from three foot above sea level to sea level. So the only way really to photograph orcas I felt was to be at sea level. And the way to do that is to be on a raft. So I was on a raft being towed along by a bigger boat in Siberia. And I didn't have a wetsuit on. I just had the ski clothes on. And I got the picture of the orca. It's called actually on the website. It's called The Killers. And it's, it's a favorite picture of mine. Um, and I was so bloody excited and also so cold <laughs> I tried to get back into the boat from the raft quicker than my instructions uh, were at the time. And the raft tipped and I fell into the ocean with my camera gear. Um, and um, it's quite cold up there. So they took me to the hospital with... Uh, uh, um, you know, in case you get hypothermia. Mm -hmm. And there was this rather uh, attractive Russian nurse who asked me to take all my clothes off. <laughs> and actually, actually, my penis had disappeared. It, it had inverted into my body. Uh, and it was one of my more embarrassing moments in my life. <laughs> she said, did the whale take it? And I said, well, I wouldn't have fed him for that long. <laughs> That wasn't where I thought the story was going, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> you might have to cut. I don't know. Maybe, you, maybe I don't because know. If, it, if, it, if I thought it, I would have gone another direction. <laughs> when you start out, it's not a sentence I've ever actually heard before. I, I had a bad experience with, with killer whales in Norway. That's that's a sentence I've never actually heard. And then your, your description is certainly a place I didn't expect it to go. I don't even know where we can leave it with that. That, that sounds like kind of a mic drop. Because it, it's tough to end something like this. I've had a great time without without being trite. But is there a is there a thing that you can conceive, David, a picture that you can imagine planning and plotting and and executing, where you would just sort of drop the camera and go, "That's it, fuck it, I can't do better than that." That's that's the the last achievement, and just make it like a walk off image, or because you can do this for years if you want to. I had I had. Um... I wanted to uh, demystify uh, Kim Jong of North Korea. So I went to North Korea with the idea that I, as a Westerner, could take a portrait of him, of the supreme leader that would demystify his personality. And um, I gave him my very best shot. Uh, I spent a week there, and then they wanted me to do teach them photography lessons and stuff. So I pulled out at the end. So that was one that got away. I mean, at the top of because my wish you thought you couldn't get it or you just didn't like the vibe. And <laughs> I just worried that I worried. I quite liked them, actually. I just worried that um, I could spend another two weeks there and then they'd turn around and say no. Ah. Um, but I, they, they did ask me how I wanted to photograph him. And 
there, I thought they had more of a sense of humor. So I said, well, I'd quite like to have him sitting on a rocket. And there, there was silence before they then laughed and said, you're making it, you're, you're being funny. And I said, yeah, well, don't worry, I wouldn't do that. But um, <laughs> I would love to, one of my heroes is Willie Nelson. Uh, and um, Willie's been obviously locked up a little bit in luck in Texas because of COVID. Uh, I would love to photograph him. I would love to photograph him uh, in a way, in my kind of way, with some badass people. He's got, he knows plenty of badass people. But that would be that would be a bit of a goal of mine. Um, and um, uh, you're all, you're always going to get better. You know, you 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 look at your extraordinary career, and you've photo you've watched some of the best tennis matches that anyone could ever watch with three extraordinary male tennis players over the last 20 years. And every time you've seen one, you've gone, my goodness, I'll never see a better game. And then probably you've gone to another one and said, well, that was actually better than the than Dal Federer one that I thought would never be beaten. Um, so you can always, always hope to get something more, uh, challenge yourself, get more creative. Uh, and... Um, I, I, I am, I'm a storyteller. So I, I, there's so many stories that are being told every time that I see a new great movie, I go, that's amazing. And they didn't even think about it three years ago and look what they've just produced. So I'm, I'm full of optimism that there's so many things around the corner. So grateful to David for his time, for his work and for what he does through his work. Since 2018, David has raised more than $6 million for humanitarian and conservation organizations. His next adventure, back to Antarctica, try to get the picture he couldn't get on his last visit, which lasted only 45 minutes because of new COVID regulations. The quest for five good pictures a year begins anew in 2022. That's also when season four of our podcast will begin. I want to thank all of our guests who made season three so much fun and thank you for your growing support. Grateful as always to co-executive producer Jennifer Dempster and Jason Weichel for his editing skills. We want to wish all of you a wonderful holiday season and a healthy, fulfilling, and happy new year. We'll talk to you soon.